From Harvard University's Graduate School of Design, this is Talking Practice, a series asking renowned designers to provide an inside glimpse into what they do, why, and how they do it, exposing the ways in which their design imagination is articulated through practice. I'm Grace Law, Professor of Architecture and Chair of the Practice Platform. Thank you for listening. Joining me today is architect Jeannie Gang, the founding principal of Studio Gang, an international architecture and urban design practice based in Chicago, New York, and San Francisco. Drawing insight from ecological systems, Jeannie is recognized for a research-based design process that foregrounds the relationship between individuals, communities, and environments. Jeannie has recently been appointed professor of practice at the GSD, where she has taught a variety of studios since 2011, exploring the multifaceted potential of materiality. This semester, she's teaching a studio on storm surge and resilience. Welcome, Jeannie. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Grace. I'm glad to be here. We had a long relationship with you, obviously because you are a graduate of the school and you've come back to lecture for us on many occasions, as well as to teach with us. But this is a chance for us to really talk about your practice Mm -hmm. and maybe speak more intimately about some of the things that drive your practice. One of the things I would like to ask you about, and maybe that other folks don't know as much about, is how did you come to start. And we actually even find the name of your practice studio gang quite interesting because it's both individual and plural. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, for sure. I'm glad that you are doing this podcast because I really am passionate about designing practice. And I think of it as a design project. So it's nice to be able to just talk about that simply and directly with you today. The question, when did it start or how did it start? You know, I think for me, I knew early on, I mean, before I even came to the GSD that I wanted to run my own show. And it was just an independent streak that I have always had. And I wanted to explore ways that the practice could be different than what I had already seen. What I had seen was a model that was very traditional where the main architect would start something on a sketch, hand it out to the studio, and then develop from there. And so I wanted to more use architecture like a medium, like you would use any medium and the arts to explore how to comment on the world, how to make a mark on the world, how to impact the world and make change. So it was a different goal for starting it. You know, I had a project, so I started out. So it was really always, it was a really deep embedded goal of mine from the very beginning. So tell me about that, because I think we are familiar with the traditional mode of practice. I think particularly when you and I actually graduated from the GSD, that really was the mode. There was a senior architect or the principal in charge of a project, Mm. and that really was the method. They would come up with a kind of initial partee. Even that word is quite old now. It's really not used anymore. But that partee would then be passed off to Mm -hmm. the group. Uh, So tell us how your studio Mm -hmm. differs. You know, I'm very curious about about the process orientation and how you work through your projects? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, is there's no eliminating any type and typology of project that comes in the door or even ones that we pursue. So it could be anything as small as an installation to a big tower to a city plan or a plan for helping an organization strategize about what they want to be. So it gets into a lot of areas that I think design can be helpful for, but it's really triggered by an interest in the subject matter, problematizing the project that might come through the door. Let's say, you know, now that we're bigger, we literally sit down every week and go through a list of projects that 
have asked us to respond. And it's the go, no-go meeting, and we really look at what the project entails. We try to understand what the potential of that project is to move the needle on architecture, to create a new line of thinking, or maybe it's a lot, or maybe it's just a little, move the needle on that subject. So mm-hmm. we kind of think of those projects as opportunities to explore bigger questions, and at the same time, a real true exploration of the material, the form of architecture. Yeah. If we take, for example, let's just say, I know your practice is working at many scales. So Mm -hmm. if we take, for example, the building project Mm -hmm. as uh, just one modality, can you describe more specifically, and let's just say the goal, as you say, is to move the needle. So when you do that, how many are on that Mm -hmm, team? mm -hmm. Um, What does it look like? What's the complexion of that? And who's leading it? And, you know, again, because I think your firm name really actually reveals something about Mm. the collaborative process as well as um, you in terms of its leadership. I'll also mention that it's quite interesting that, you know, again, most of the traditional practices Mm. are top down. Mm -hmm. So design occurs at the top and then it's filtered Mm -hmm. down. Whereas I was very intrigued Years ago, you showed us a diagram in which you structure yourselves as a tree. So it's bottom up, and the people in the firm are the leaves and the branches, and that grows from you and Mark and your leadership as the sort of trunk. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. So anyway, I'd like to understand, so again, from the specific modality of a building, how are you structuring that mm-hmm. collaborative process? Yeah, well, I could start by talking about how that is today, but you know, it organically literally grew into what it is today, but... The way that it would work today is starting with this organization that we have. We tested different kinds of organizations for our practice. And this one that I came up with basically after lots of interactions with different people and our whole entire staff thinking about it, this one kind of has some major branches of the tree. The trunk, yes, that's me and the roots are the values of you know what we care about. So if you imagine a project coming in, kind of the two major sides of the tree are design now and then design management. And you notice I say design management, not management, because people who are in design management are also designers. And so it's all about design. But the team would be composed of me on the design side, Mark or William, another collaborator on the design management side, and then project architects, designers on both sides of these branches. And, you know, literally when people first come into the organization, they are not pigeonholed into design or design management. You start out trying to explore everything and you kind of migrate to the thing that you're good at and that you enjoy. So a team would be made up of both designers and design managers and, you know, just people doing both tasks, really, led by a project architect and then a design principal who works directly with me. And then on the operations and management side, someone leading on that side, too. So it gets touched by really senior everyone all the way to me to senior designers and experienced design managers all the way to people who are maybe it's their first day on the job at Studio Gang. So it's a team composed of these different levels that will work with me to help flush out those questions that we talked about, like the issues of the project, starting with research, starting with understanding the whole landscape around this question, and then digging down, you know, proceeding on with the project from there. Maybe said in another way, the organization of the practice today is 
like this tree and the basic sides of it are design and design management. So the team gets composed of people from both sides of that trunk. What I like about the tree is literally it can grow another whole branch. So what we've done in the last five years is really started an urban design practice as well that has its design and its design management. It's really like able to respond organically to what's needed. I mean, the whole concept of it is to make it so that people with more experience are really supporting and mentoring people that are newer. So you can become a branch. There is no problem with that. You don't have to stomp all over someone to get there. You just have to support other people. And so you see how it, right. it totally changes the way we think about our relationship to our colleagues. You know, if you can help support them and them doing the best they can do, that's the goal. And then the project benefits from it, I think. I think it benefits much more from this approach than from the more, let's say, Darwinian model where you're trying to win out over everyone else. When we started to grow, I felt like I needed some advice about like how to grow the practice and we brought some consultants in. This is when we were about like 35 people and they recommended the structure, but we wanted to test it out from everybody's idea within the practice first. So we had these amazing, incredible diagrams made by everyone in the office of how we should structure ourselves. And we had some incredible, funny, like cool diagrams, some to do with biology, some to do with machines and so on. But the result of that exercise was we were going to have these pairs of leaders for different practices within like let's say everyone that is working with clients that are organized like developers everyone that is working with clients that are organized like universities um, because we recognize these different structures need different things so that was our first attempt but then it kind of it didn't work out because um, after we did it for about a year we realized that there's just not enough flexibility in it and also it was clear that there were people who were just good leaders in the design capacity and in the design management capacity. And everybody wants to work on slightly different projects too, not just the same projects. So we just trashed that model after we tried it out together and we came up with the tree, which is you know more the design uh, leaders in the design management. And the important thing about design management, it's not just checking off boxes like, a managing a flow of work and you know achieving the deliverables it's really about seeing when those critical moments are to bring in like me or you know to look at something to bring in designers to do another study of design you know there's actual design decisions in that role very important ones because you know otherwise if you are going along managing a project and you don't look for those warning signs or you know, positive things, opportunities. Um, opportunities, you're missing the chance to make the project rise up and be excellent. So it, it's about, you know, bringing it to this excellent level. So someone in the management role, which we call design management, has got to be a good designer and someone who's just like, okay, we need to have a meeting with these people involved because there's a design thing that needs to be solved. So that oftentimes comes from the design manager, not just the design lead. So you see what I mean? There's a capacity there that's very important. Right. So it's almost as if the design manager needs to be as sensitive as the actual designer because this person needs to really know when to capitalize on a very particular moment. Exactly. And to potentially redirect the project, its path, its mm -hmm. workflow towards a more innovative 
end even mm-hmm. perhaps, yes. which is quite different than somebody who is responsible for making the path go from A to B, initiation to closure in a smooth way, which is actually most project managers are considered successful if they make the path very streamlined Mm -hmm. and very smooth in terms of non-deviant behaviors. (laughs) I really wanted to design a practice that was actually fun and where I wanted to be and where I wanted to be with the other people and to learn about the other people and to see what they're talents were. I think I had in mind to make it more of a a fun culture where there's discovery, co-creation, discovery, like bringing out talents that people have and that maybe they didn't even know they had or they have in, in other fields. Like, for example, we do things together. Like a couple people started doing teaching, learning to be teachers in yoga. Eventually now they teach our, they do our yoga classes every week and, you know, other people are musicians. So we try to cultivate that, that kind of, I mean, maybe it sounds corny, but it's so much fun. It really is. Right. That's the point was to be able to have that trust that takes a while to build up not trust to the point where someone is not performing, you know, that hurts the whole team. So that needs to be addressed. But if you can help someone get better performance and better ideas and learn new skills, I think that's what I feel good about at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah. And so that actually was different than, let's say, perhaps your time in not necessarily even at REM's office, but just in general in the past at, in more traditional front practices. Right. As you can tell, I'm trying not to, <laughs> I don't want to criticize someone else's practice, but my model of practice is developed based on things, yes, things I didn't like in other practices. Sure, sure. But taking things that I did like to make it authentically comfortable for me as a leader of my practice, I want it to be this way, you know? Right. And right. so I also seek out other people that are like that and collaborators that are you know, like-minded because it is, has to work. It's very close. We spend so many hours together, you know, so it's nice to like the people you're working with. Right, right. So from the design side, Jeannie, that would be you. And then from the management side or the design management side specifically, that would be Mark Mm -hmm. Schendel. Exactly. It'd be great if we could turn to another question that seems to be a strand in the work. And this is the question of the tectonic culture that you are imbuing your projects that -hmm. really is born out of the process, but we see as a seminal interest from your early days, even with the hanging marble curtain, which was years and years ago. I think, if I'm not mistaken, I remember you talking about that project just as it came when I was faculty at the University of Wisconsin, and you were describing the installation for that project Mm -hmm. and finding methods to suspend it from the ceiling (laughs) and the backing on it. Tell us a little bit about your interest in the material culture. It's kind of the combination of technology, craft, and material that I find as an essential piece for me, for us, and my practice as an essential piece of, let's say, the satisfying architectural installation, building, object, whatever, because that's the scale of invention that is maybe not even noticeable in today's media environment, you know, where you're really just looking at images of buildings online, but it's the reward that you get when you actually go there. And so as someone who will hike or travel or get on planes, trains, and automobiles to go see a good building and be there in person, I want our designs to have that layer of thought applied. It's how do you, it's the fractal aspect of design. How do you take the big picture concept and bring it all the way down to the way two materials come together. And this is not to say it's 
old school like tectonic. I know that a lot of people don't even think it's relevant, but for us, it is so relevant. It's so much about the joy of making something, which is one of the reasons why we continue to do installations to really have that opportunity to put materials together on a scale that can be done in a quick, more of like a time frame of months instead of years, you know. I'd like to turn attention to some of the let's say, the categories of projects that Studio Gang has been doing. On the one hand, maybe we could categorize these in maybe four ways. That there are developer-driven projects, for example, your acclaimed high-rise, the Aqua Tower, or even the Montparnasse kind of project that, you know, again, have a very heavy development component. The second, institutionally-driven projects, for example, your work with the American Museum of Natural History, Science Center, and then, of course, the public projects, a third would be things that you're thinking about that have to do with ecological and urbanistic concerns. And then fourth might even be a category of installations and exhibitions that have to do with thought processes and maybe some of this root structure that you mm-hmm. described earlier. Can you talk about specific tactics that are different than these categories? Or how are you imagining this body of work, which, you know, again, hopefully they characterize this correctly, but it seems like there are these four areas of the practice. Yeah. Okay. So for me, the thing that unites them is that we are trying to make projects that create better, let's say, relationships between people and people and their environment. So I put in that big basket, you know, the tall buildings are very important because as we try to densify our cities, we want people to not get isolated in ivory towers and living in towers. And how do you make these towers connected to people socially and to make them aware of where they are living? So those fit into the same category as me as maybe a theater organization that's trying to spread theater to more people to be more a civic player, to be more of a convener, and to help build these stronger community local ties. So all of these things, to me, fit into the category. Now, each one of them requires a little bit different schedules, skills, methodologies. I would put taller buildings are kind of whether they're developer, you know, if, in fact, the Montparnasse competition, that was not developer-driven. Ah, yeah, so it was owner-driven. So these tall buildings, though, are very specific in how they are conceived and worked out, you know, the speed at which they have to be studied. So they kind of have a, a really unique process. And then more along the lines of the schedule and the things that you produce are a little bit different. But then most of the time we're thinking of, like, we're helping the organizations. I'm really attracted to ones where the organization is trying to imagine its next step in its future. Right. So are you finding that your consultant teams, I'm sure that they're expanding and they're probably unusual? You know, again, we're very familiar with the typical kinds of consultants that one brings on to any particular project. When you reach outside that, can you provide us yeah. with some examples of whom you are collaborating yeah. that right. is maybe outside of traditional right. um, mm-hmm. consultant yes, teams? Sure. Yeah, because, yeah, some of these problems, they might not even need a mechanical engineer, for example, or, you know, it might be something different. So more and more, we are looking to, especially in the urban projects, 
to the public themselves for some expertise. I'm just picking up on that one because I know that a lot of architects are allergic to engaging the public in any kind of design process. But what we have found is that there's a lot of intelligence in the space of the public. And like as architects, I think that we need to be able to readily tap into that. So one of the things we've done is we've actually increased our expertise. We've done workshops and had people come in and teach us, you know, what the best ways are to engage in these different levels of it. So that piece, I think, is maybe the most unusual for a design practice like ours, because it has traditionally been thought of something that's like, you don't really want to do that at all. <laughs> like It's like taking cough medicine or something, you know, but it's not at all. It's actually we enjoy it and it's fun. Yeah. So I actually would love to hear a little bit more about that because public process, public engagement, I think you're right that many architects are a bit allergic to that mode. But in your practice, it mm -hmm. seems important for you to be able to figure out the moments of brilliance within public suggestions mm -hmm. and discourse that have spatial potential or an outcome that is architectural. Right. I, it's not just about suggestions, though. I think it's like, you know, we think of it as a continuum of engagement. And to me, because a lot of our projects are in the public realm, the more engaged the public is, let's get, you're preparing the public to receive this project, to author it, to co-author it with you. And whether the suggestion, if it's suggestions or not, whatever the participation is, it's kind of irrelevant. It's a process of preparing everyone in the community to receive the building, the space, the park, the whatever it is. And it's bringing this group along with you to support it, to criticize it, to do all those different things. And it's a way to make your project successful. That's the way I look at it. It's right, right. a way to make it success. It'll be better from this process. It'll be you know, there's going to be difficult things. It takes time too. So there's a part of practice that, you know, you need to be remunerated for this time that it takes, but it is so worth it for the projects we've all done this with. And in fact, with the urban projects that we're doing, it's oftentimes it's a starting point, like really, instead of, you know, making a master plan and then going and showing it to people, it's really first thing is who can we talk to that has got this fingers on the pulse of this community. And then on the other side, from the institutional side, you know, at what level does this institution or organization want to engage? Do they want just informational? You know, do they want to be collaborative? Do they want to empower? Like there's a continuum of ways that you can engage the public. Right. I just think this is the future of practice at the GSD. We should be teaching like how to do it better. And Right, you know. so you've actually had folks come into your practice to teach you the skills and to run these public meetings and to figure out best ways of being able to gather the information. Yeah. Maybe mm -hmm. just tell us a yeah. little bit more about that specifically. Yeah, just that we realized, you know, we were interested in the space. We were doing a lot of things on our own. We realized there's probably people that know how to do this better. So we start educating ourselves um, more on it. And because you think about each designer, not just me or the, the leaders, but everyone, because we all need to be in that role at some point, engaging the outside world. And so it could be somebody who just started. It could be one of us right. that have been here for a long time. So right, right. yeah, so it needed to be more skills. So we've been working on that a lot to learn there, but I think it's really an important thing. So that was, long story short, that was one of the outside 
unusual engagements, consultants that we use, but also anything from people who are expert at vernacular architecture to ornithologists to people who are doing urban wildlife ecology, all kinds of different technologies that will find the right collaborator. Sometimes you don't know who that is in the very beginning of the project. So you're like, as the project design starts to become visible, you realize you need that person on the team. So it doesn't always happen in the beginning. Right. So you've described a very interesting process in which you're very involved in engaging the public. In that realm, who are the architects that Studio Gang has looked to for inspiration? And what are some precedents that come up in your studio? What do you refer Mm -hmm. to when you are talking shop? Mm -hmm. On the engagement side, really working with contemporary people who have started to do this process again. But, you know, if you look back at architects who did that first, it's probably practices in the 60s and 70s. One of them we discovered kind of by chance, which was Charles Moore's practice, because we started to work on the University of California, Santa Cruz Residence Hall. And it's a Kresge College that he designed there, and he did it with this really interactive method with students and and others in the college. And this actually started us thinking that there is a kind of a line of this kind of practice, and we should start to dig into that more and to learn from that, Mm. those first things. Of course, we also learn that a lot of times people, whether they did it in the most advanced way that we can now with our tools that we have to use and our information technology that we can tap into data as well as direct engagement, we can use data as well. It's different now, but it's interesting to see that there was a thread of this going on in the 60s and 70s. And then I think there's also just architecture buildings that are very informative. Oftentimes, I think one of our touchstone projects is the Sesque Pompeii building by Lina Bobardi. And for many reasons, it's an urban project as well as an architectural project. It's a project that is about creating relationships between people of different classes and occupations in a city that was very divided, let's say skewed between classes. And look at our time we're in now, we have similar challenges right now. So we've learned a lot from that project over the years. We've looked at it for different reasons over the years. It's a really interesting architect as well. Many times I'm interested in uh, looking at people who have done work which was pioneering with material, whether it's, you know, something by Saarinen with concrete or masonry, you know, by Burnham and Root in the uh, Monadnock building, for example, or something pioneering in wood or, you know, through the materials or just through how the building interacts with the city. So precedents are a big part of our research um, approach. So when you think forward and you think a little bit about what is the future of practice? You know, whether it's you imagining your own practice 10 years from now or whether you are thinking about the discipline on the whole, where do you think it's going? What, do you, what are some of the issues and or, you know, mm-hmm. in very broad brushstroke, what do you mm-hmm. think will be the face mm-hmm. of practice in 10 years? Well, I know that, I mean, there are more and more people with design education and architecture education that are out there in the world and they're not necessarily going to be doing, you know, traditional practice. I see the skills that we have as very valuable in many industries in everything from game design to organizational design to planning facilities for major organizations to working in tech. I mean, the creative skills that we know how to do 
business schools have been looking at for a long time already, like how do they do that? Mm -hmm. And so I like to think that there are going to be more future savvy clients in the world that have more knowledge of design as a baseline, which will, I think, help us as architects that are designing buildings and spaces and landscapes to do better work, you know. And um, if one can say, and maybe this is too too strong a word, but if there's a sort of diaspora of the profession or of the discipline of architecture, mm -hmm. then what do we have left then? Mm -hmm. You know, let's just say that mm -hmm. if when we think about the discipline and our mm -hmm. the, yeah. the future of architecture, let's just say yeah. a good percentage of them decide to go to design Everywhere. consultancy yeah. and or you know the IDOs of it's, the world or the it's um, good for gaming. all of us. There's always going to be this the core of design and the fact that we have a certain history, we have precedents, we have our heroes and heroines, and we have the big evidence that the buildings themselves that are we're always learning from and working to improve and to go further and to use new tools and to do different processes to come up with these structures that ultimately shelter us and allow us to be human. That practice needs to still be there, you know. So what I'm seeing, my positive mind, I guess, thinking of like what the benefit is, is really that we have more higher level thinkers in design throughout in our the people that we touch, you know, whether they're collaborators, clients, cities, they all are gaining design intelligence mm -hmm. in, in the way that they work. And they are seeing more value in what we do, the ones that kind of have based our practices on, I guess I could say more bounded, even though I don't see our practice as super narrowly defined, but it's still architecture and urban design. And that's what we do every day, day in and day out. You know, mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. there's still a need, a need for that. And the people who, like us, are really into it are going to continue to be into it because it's a fascinating world and it's like, you know, we love it. But I'm just saying that there's a lift that we will all get from our graduates of the GSD, say, and other graduates around the world going into tangential fields. And I actually hope that happens a lot because I think bringing the kind of architecture thinking to these fields, again, is going to help everyone. It's going to help our work, but it's going to help cities be better and everything be better. Even think of an architect designing what the next political system could be. You know, I think that it's limitless what's possible for architecture mm. education. Interesting. So right now in academic circles, there's always this question of interdisciplinarity and everybody wants to make sure that our students, the faculty, the research is, is transdisciplinary, actually, mm -hmm. I should say, that it crosses boundaries, that it mm -hmm. makes essentially new fields. And I think that we all recognize that there are certain incredible benefits and innovation that come from mm -hmm. that. But then the flip side to it is that there can be a kind of de-skilling mm. of the discipline itself, you know, while everybody's working so hard to make sure that thinking mm -hmm. in cross-disciplinary ways, what uh, is the, what is the agree with that question all. of the core? Yeah. So yeah, so yeah, no, no. what do you think about the, um, those issues? That's just being paranoid about the core. The core is there, okay? The core is always going to be there. and But all the inventions, if you look in every new discovery in science and art in every field is because we're breaking out of those silos and being able to touch something that's not exactly in our space, but we can see how it applies. And so the people who are the most successful 
can do that touching, reaching out to, without eroding some core. I mean, come so on. So what is the core? Yeah. So, so, okay. So then what is the core in your mind? What would that core be? Well, if you imagine that the core is only like form based, then, okay, well, a key part of architecture is form. I'm not denying that. It's a very key piece, but we don't want architecture. I'm speaking for you and me. And I don't think we want architecture to just be like fashion, which is not to say there's something wrong with fashion, but fashion is really literally like, you know, it's changed so quickly that there's nothing to hang on to there. And architecture, there's more discipline to it, disciplinarity. There is more to know. There's a lot to know. So I don't see how, yes, we always have to continue to teach the discipline in practice after people leave school. What would be great is if in school they can also learn how to touch those other fields, but still learning the core things that you need to know to be an architect. But the skill of gleaning, let's say, from other fields or literally working together with someone from a different field and learning how to speak that language, that is a very valuable skill that I think we can help students start to learn. We can show them how how we work. So, right. so mm-hmm. But that suggests, though, that there are a certain set of core techniques or core issues. Mm-hmm. What you're suggesting is that if there is a core and if there is strength within that core, then, of course, mixing with allied fields only serves to make a more robust and more interesting mm-hmm. project and or make a more relevant mm-hmm. set of endeavors. Today, it seems that there's, at least from where I sit, mm-hmm there's a question about what defines that core even. When you Mm -hmm. and I were in school, Mm -hmm. we'd like to say just yesterday, but (laughs) unfortunately it's a couple of many years ago, you know, there was a very specific idea or attitude about representation, about the truth of the physical model, a kind of set of abilities, Mm -hmm. both analytical as well as even physical, that would comprise the training of the architect. In some ways, you did that so well at the GSD. And I know that because I stared at the back of your head. I think I mentioned that in a lecture intro one time of you years ago. So I'm just curious. So let's just say, for example, that if an architecture student today is, let's say, not getting that particular kind of training, what is the nexus of the training these days? Well, you've got to remember that this is always changing. I mean, it's not going to be the same now as it was then and it was different before that. If you go back to what an architect was in, let's say, you know, medieval times or something, there was a lot of skills present in one person that was knows how to do construction, knows how to run a job site, knows how to draw, knows how to cut stone. We change, and our profession is constantly changing. So the core is whatever we decided is together, and that's why, you know, right now, for example, it is so much more important to understand lots of different software tools now. That That's a tool that's a different tool than it was before. So it's constantly being updated. I think there will be people that migrate to the more, let's say, more central skills sets, like space form materials, constructability, phenomenal qualities. But then, you know, then there are circles around that maybe. You brought up teaching, and I think... I mentioned earlier that we're not really learning how to engage maybe in architecture school. We're not learning how to also how to get our projects that we might self-initiate into the world. So that's one of the things I want to try to impart with the students since I am 
professor in practice. I want to show how to practice. And so one of the things we're doing in my studio currently is thinking of ways that projects that we're doing in design studio, what kind of support they could get through different threads that could help make them even more real. And so it's interesting when you start thinking about a project like that, you get lots of different ideas about what the design could actually be. It, it kind of opens up this tangential realm of research that can really inform the design, but also help think about the next step of this design of how to make it a reality, even if it's a self-initiated project. I think that's a very important, really crucial way of thinking, because I think, again, if we think about the earlier part of the conversation, the traditional modes, you can sit and wait for the phone to ring, or you can go out there and decide that, you know, there's an important issue that needs to be tackled and that design could ameliorate a particular set of conditions. And so this amplify something, amplify something, um, improve something to empower our students to be more initiative taking, to see potential and really never let a stone go unturned, I think is quite interesting and important way of thinking about design education, because even that could be designed. Mm -hmm. And which, again, would give our future practitioners a really new way of practicing, of tackling projects that are very important, that go beyond the scale of building, but to more global issues. So for all of these parameters, I think that that is a critical way in which the next generation needs to continue to think, and that practices like yours have paved the way for that kind of thinking think of like what we might be creating too is somebody who's going to change the world in a different way. So getting them exposed to different disciplines is incredible. You raise so many issues with this, and we could talk a lot of time (laughs) on the various strands of this, but just remarking on the last comment that you made. In a way, I think what you're suggesting, which I think Mm. is quite interesting, is the plurality of the many different ways Mm. in which architects can thrive and can operate in, I think, many different arenas suggests that there's no more monotheism right? (laughs) in a sense Mm -hmm. that there is a very diverse range. It sounds to me like you would promote that, that that's what you would imagine to be a healthy organism that is actually operating at different levels and that there isn't the single definition of design. We can still group ourselves into smaller, more narrow categories to test and to get the highest level of debate in there. Like those of us interested in new form of certain type, we can make a small group that really digs into that issue. Or if we are interested in technology, there are those of us who can self-organize into a group to focus on that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that. It's totally needed as well, but I'm just saying that design education should be exposing people to these ways of working with others, to many different relevant other fields right now that exist right here in Harvard. So it's like, yeah, why not tap into those things? Right. It's a particular wealth of opportunity that we would have mm-hmm. here specifically because we have so much expertise in other areas. Mm-hmm. There's a I think embedded in your practice is a desire to see, on the one hand, the efficiency of systems, of materials, of use, functional value, but then also its potential to be tactile, transformative, sensual. And I think the fact that your work is, the pendulum swings from edge to edge is, again, what makes it so distinctive and innovative for us. I think we will benefit from having you at our school as part of our GSD community. We are so excited and thrilled that you'll be here on a regular basis and that our students will benefit from you know, a particular way that you are seeing the world and that we might begin to practice. 
Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Grace. I'm Grace Law, and you've been listening to Talking Practice from the practice platform of Harvard University's Graduate School of Design. Today's episode was produced by Ronnie Seraf and edited by Maggie Janik. Research was provided by Alexander Porter. To find out more about programs and events at the Harvard Graduate School of Design, visit us online at gsd.harvard.edu. Thanks for listening. <laughs>